Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another episode of M Patient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients to myeloma researchers. We as patients have an important role to play in determining the pace of research. By participating in clinical trials, we can help researchers come to conclusions more quickly. We all want to find a cure, and this is one way we can help, even when, and may importantly, especially when we're undergoing treatment. I know that we all care about myeloma research because we've now had over 5,000 listeners to the show. So just a note before we get started, we have two new ways you can subscribe to find out about upcoming and past interviews on the Innovation in Myeloma series on Inpatient Radio. We have a new weekly newsletter called the Inpatient Minute, where you can see all the most important posts in an email sent to you just once a week, or you can subscribe to all the posts as they are posted. You can do this on the right side of the homepage of our site, www.mformyelomapatient.com. Org website. To simplify our show, this will now be the only way we'll notify you of upcoming shows, so I really encourage you to register today. We have the best and brightest myeloma researchers on our calendar, and you don't want to miss what they have to say. Speaking of which, we have one of the best and brightest with us today. I'm very delighted to have a conversation today with Dr. William I. Bensinger. So welcome, Dr. Bensinger, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jenny. So I'd like to give you a little introduction, if you don't mind. Dr. Bensinger received his medical degree at Northwestern University in Chicago. He interned at Washington University in St. Louis. He worked at the National Cancer Institute in cancer virology before moving to the University of Washington for his residency with a subspecialty in medical oncology. Dr. Bensinger is the director of the Autologous Bone Marrow Transplant Program at the Seattle Cancer Cancer Care Alliance. He is a member of the Clinical Research Division at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. He is a professor of medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. He's also a member of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, Myeloma Guidelines Committee, and co-chair of the same cancer-related infection guidelines committee. He's also a member of the International Myeloma Working Group Clinical Endpoints Committee. He's published more than 200 articles in reference journals, books, and in the field of stem cell transplantation, and especially how transplantation relates to the treatment of multiple myeloma. He studied the use of CD34 stem cells and other antibodies that we'll talk about today. And in addition, he holds several patents, including one as co-inventor of the Avidin Biotin Bead Selection System, which you're going to have to cover. <laughs> um, <laughs> His areas of research include autologous stem cell transplantation, as well as allogenic, um, targeted radiotherapy, and immunotherapy. Dr. Bensinger has been treating and studying multiple myeloma for over 25 years. 
So thank you for so much for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to treating and finding a cure for multiple myeloma. Well, thank you very much for that uh, very nice introduction, Jenny. Um, I guess I'll start off today um, by talking about at least one of the newer drugs in multiple myeloma and how we're using it to uh, hopefully advance the treatment and management of this disease. Um, the drug is carfilzomib. Uh, this is a second-generation proteasome inhibitor. So it's a, uh, a second drug that was developed after the, uh, the drug bortezomib was, first came on the scene about 10 years ago. This drug does, has a similar type of action but appears to be more specific to a particular enzyme within the proteasome. And it is a more, if you will, a more targeted approach uh, in terms of uh, reacting against this particular component in, the, in cells. The advantage of this is that it has fewer toxicities. Uh, because it's so targeted against a particular enzyme, uh, it has less uh, off-target, what we call off-target effects, which lead to some of the side effects associated with bortezomib, one of them being uh, neuropathy. Uh, this has several advantages. Uh, because there's little or no neuropathy with this drug, you can give the drug uh, for a longer period of time uh, than, might not, than might be tolerated otherwise. You can give the drug more frequently, and you can give the drug in higher doses than would be possible to do if the drug had some of these side effects. We're studying this drug in combination with other drugs for two phases of, of the disease in multiple myeloma. We have an upfront trial designed for patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma in which we're combining carfilzomib with two other drugs, cyclophosphamide and dexamethasone. Uh, as you know, cyclophosphamide is an alkylating agent, one of the older drugs for the management of uh, myeloma, but a very active drug. And then dexamethasone, also a very important drug. And we're actually conducting this as part of a multi-center phase three, or phase one study, where we're actually giving higher and higher doses of carfilzomib, mainly designed to determine if, number one, if there is a maximum dose you can give, but number two, if the higher doses can more effectively control the cancer. And so far, uh, we haven't observed uh, dose-limiting toxicities, and we've given actually twice the initial dose that's used to treat patients with uh, this disease, twice the initial dose of carfilzomib. The drug seems to be, or the drug combination seems to be very well tolerated, and so far all of the patients that we've treated have responded. Now, that's a small number. It's only about a half dozen patients, mm -hmm. but everyone seems to have responded so far. Now, we're also studying this drug in a group of patients who have failed lots of other therapies, namely uh, uh, patients who have relapsed and are deemed to have resistant disease. Uh, these are primarily patients who failed 
the drug lenalidomide, one of the uh, widely used immunomodulatory drugs. And patients who've uh, f relapsed and failed lenalidomide are put on a combination of carfilzomib, pomalidomide, the third generation immunomodulatory drug, and dexamethasone. And again, this combination seems to be very active. Um, anyway, uh, this combination seems to be quite active, even in patients who failed lenalidomide, and again, seems to be very well tolerated. So uh, this is a; these are two important combinations. This is a this is a drug that is, uh, uh, I think, going to have a lot of important um, uses in the management of multiple myeloma. Now, these are just a couple of the trials that we have. Um, we we have a actually quite a large number of trials that we're doing at our center. We try to select different trials using looking at different uh, drugs and combinations. Uh, in a big way, I'm trying to find uh, new types of drugs that have different activities with the idea ultimately of, of combining therapies. I think some of the, the major advances that have been done in the management of other cancers, and I think it applies uh, very much to m patients with myeloma is combinations of therapies. I think in general we find that combinations work uh, more effectively and faster than uh, single drugs or even maybe two drugs when you can use a combination of three. Now we have to prove obviously ultimately that three or four drug combinations are better than two drug combinations. But I think that uh, as a strategy for for managing the disease, these combinations seem to be better. So just a review of some of the trials that we're doing. Uh, we're actually participating in a large international trial using a, a pretty stand what is now a pretty standard drug combination, which is bortezomib, lenalidomid, and dexamethasone. And this is a study primarily designed to ask the question of the role of autologous stem cell transplant when these newer drug combinations are used. So as part of this trial, patients receive induction therapy with this three-drug combination and then have their stem cells collected. And then half of the patients uh, have a transplant, go on to an autologous stem cell transplant, and that's followed by two more cycles of this same induction therapy and then a maintenance phase. The other group uh, simply uh, stays on this induction therapy for five more cycles and then maintenance. So basically you're comparing a total of five cycles of bortezomib, lenalidomid, dexamethasone, plus transplant, to eight cycles of bortezomib, lenalidomid, dexamethasone without a transplant. This trial is being conducted in Europe, uh, mainly in France, and they have had uh, a large number of patients on this study. And then in the U.S., there's uh, a fairly large number of sites now uh, conducting this trial, probably about a dozen now, but I think uh, that's going to increase to as many as 40 or 50 sites around the U.S. 
And and what are the results showing so far on that trial? Well, or is it too, uh, too early to tell? It's too it's too early. Uh, they 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 for very good reasons they don't want to release any early results of this trial because. Um, uh, it no, might affect okay. the ability to put patients on. <laughs> yeah. So the other the other trials that we're doing for newly diagnosed patients involve uh, for mainly for patients who are not considered transplant candidates, a randomized trial of lenalidomide and dexamethasone with or without the drug elituzumab. Now elituzumab is a monoclonal antibody. And I'll I'll talk a little bit about monoclonal antibodies in a few minutes to try to tell you more about that. But basically, this is looking at a three-drug combination, the antibody, lenalidomide, dex, or just the standard lenalidomide, dexamethasone alone. And then we are going to be opening up a trial, in fact, probably within the next month for newly diagnosed patients, using a new drug called oprosimib. Aprosimib is an oral proteasome inhibitor, and as you know, uh, both bortezomib and carfilzomib have to be given by injection, either a subcutaneous injection or an intravenous injection. Aprosimib is an oral form of carfilzomib, and so it's a potentially very exciting drug because it's simply a pill that you take. This is being looked at in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. So, uh, again, this is a common combination of a proteasome inhibitor, an immunomodulatory drug, and then a steroid like dexamethasone. And this promises, I think, to be a very active combination, but the nice thing about it is it's all oral. Yeah, that's great. Now... I mentioned that I would talk more about antibodies. So monoclonal antibodies are one of the next big types of drugs that I think uh, uh, we're interested in, in in multiple myeloma. So this this interest really developed with the the discovery and development of the first monoclonal antibody. Uh, that had activity in any type of cancer, and that was a drug called rituximab. Rituximab targets a, a protein expressed mostly in lymphoma patients and uh, some patients with a, a form of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So this protein uh, called CD20 is a protein that is is not only found on the surface of the cells, but it is an important um, signaling for the cell and, and signals growth and development. And it's found that if you block this with an antibody, cells go on to die. There is much interest in developing a similar type of antibody in multiple myeloma. Now, unfortunately, myeloma cells typically do not express the same CD20 protein, but they do have other proteins, among them a protein called CD38, and there's a uh, another protein that doesn't have a number but is referred to as CS1. Now, elotuzumab is, is one of the first drugs to move forward in this field. Elotuzumab targets this CS1 protein, 
and uh, was done was per, phase one uh, studies of the drug alone were performed, and I, I was part of those initial trials. And I have to say that the the activity of elotuzumab by itself was relatively modest. What I mean by that is the best that you could see when you use the drug alone in patients with myeloma who'd relapsed was stabilization of their disease. You didn't get real uh, responses in, the, in these patients. However, when the drug was combined with lenalidomide, this immunomodulatory drug, and dexamethasone, the responses were relatively dramatic. Uh, typically, for a relapsed population of patients who are treated with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, you'd expect to see response rates in the 50 to 60 percent range. When you combine this with elotuzumab, we observed responses in the 80 to 90 percent range. Really dramatically different. And That's so, stunning. because yeah, it was quite stunning uh, and unexpected, I have to say. But uh, because of that, this drug has moved forward with the combination of lenalidomide and dexamethasone, both as initial therapy and as continuing to be studied in a relapse setting. Now, the neat thing about antibodies is they work by a totally different mechanism of action from most of the other agents that we use. So it's a unique class of drugs. They typically don't have serious toxicities. There is usually some first dose effect which you, in which you can get like a flu-like syndrome when you, when you get the first couple of doses of the drug. But after that, there don't appear to be serious side effects. So it's kind of nice because this is a, uh, a, a drug class that potentially uh, can be used with other drugs and not add to the side effects. And that's one of the reasons they're such interested in, in antibodies. Now, there are um, some other drugs that look promising in this class. The most active drug to date appears to be a, a drug targeting uh, this protein CD38. So CD38 is expressed very heavily on myeloma cells and plasma cells and also to a lesser extent on some other blood cells. But there are, there are several forms of anti-CD38 antibodies that have been reported to have activity in myeloma as single agents. And so there's uh, great interest in this antibody as well. Uh, one of the drugs is called daratumumab, uh, but there are at least two other forms that are um, moving forward in development. And we will be opening uh, a trial for patients with relapse disease using one of these anti-CD38 antibodies. Now, we're also looking at several other combinations uh, in uh, the relapse setting. Uh, we're looking at a form of uh, histone deacetylase inhibitor uh, called ACY1215. So histones are proteins that bind to the DNA of cells and result in modification of how the cells uh, 
can uh, grow and develop by what happens is these proteins will bind to the DNA and essentially shield the DNA from its ability to make make other proteins that, that promote growth and development. Now, it's found that these histones are much more active in certain types of cancers. And so if you can inhibit the action of these histones through a, uh, a an inhibitor of this enzyme, histone deacetylase, you may get uh, activity in myeloma. This is a particular histone deacetylase that seems to be very well tolerated and is used, again, in combination with lenalidomid and dexamethasone. And we're studying it as part of a dose-finding study. So groups of patients receive increased doses of the drug with lenalidomid and dex. And so far, it appears to be very well tolerated and with good activity. So I have a question about the histone sure. inhibitor. So I've seen uh -huh. different numbers, like the ACY1215 that you're talking about, and I've seen other numbers. Are those just different kinds of histone inhibitors? Yes, there's a whole variety. In fact, there are some approved for the treatment of cancers. There's one called Varinostat, which is widely used for the treatment of T-cell malignancies. Uh, unfortunately, it was studied in myeloma and had very, very modest activity and is probably not a very important drug in this disease. But there are other types of histone deacetylase inhibitors, and they're likely to be specific for different types of cancers. And so this is where you get into this issue of a, a more personalized approach to the treatment of cancer, and we can talk more about that later. Yeah, I'd like to. Now, we're also studying in a relapse setting the use of another oral proteasome inhibitor, this is one that's a little further along in development called MLN9708. Uh, it also has a name, Ixatamib, and I honestly have trouble pronouncing it. It's one of these odd spellings, I-X-A-T-O-M-I-B or something like that. But uh, I refer to it by its name before, the, before it was given this special name, MLN9708. Now, this is an oral form of the proteasome inhibitor bortezomib and is much further along in development. Uh, it's also being studied in a, not only in a relapse setting but in an early treatment setting. It's also being studied uh, or, or soon to be studied as a form of maintenance therapy. And uh, we can talk more about the role of maintenance therapy in a few minutes. But that's yet another study that we're, we're doing. And then we're studying several other interesting compounds that I think uh, have quite a bit of potential. One of them is a drug called ibrutinib. And what it is is an inhibitor of a specific B cell pathway, uh, signaling pathway inside B cells called Bruton's tyrosine kinase. And so this yeah. is a way, this is a, a signaling pathway whereby cells uh, are, are stimulated to grow and develop. And if you block this pathway, cells die. And it's a, it seems to be a very important pathway in a, in a variety of uh, B cell cancers. 
Uh, brutinib has already been shown to have tremendous activity in chronic lymphocytic leukemia and a form of lymphoma called mantle cell lymphoma. The drug will likely be approved before the end of the year for these diseases. There is little data in myeloma, and we don't know yet what the activity is going to be, but it could it could be a very important drug. And we've just started a trial with uh, a number of patients in this in this uh, group uh, looking at this drug ibrutinib. So it's too early to tell how useful it's going to be in this in myeloma, but I think it it is a potentially promising pathway. Now, we're actually studying a very uh, unique drug combination that's, uh, I'll be honest with you, it's going to be a little difficult to explain in layman's terms. Uh, but what we're can, studying, okay, the drug is called SNSO1-T, and it's being studied in B-cell malignancies, and it's yet another B-cell pathway uh, based on inhibition of a uh, of a molecule known as eukaryotic translation initiating factor and we just call it EIF5A again this is a a a protein that's been implicated in the regulation of cell proliferation inflammation and cell death, and appears to be very active in B-cell malignancies. The drug, or not the drug, the protein is modified in cells with another protein that I won't even mention the name of, that, that basically turns the protein on or off from being a, a protein that promotes cell death to a protein that promotes cell growth. And what we're studying, actually, is a small DNA molecule, what's called a plasmid DNA, and an interfering RNA. So it's actually two components to this, and it's given intravenously. It gets into these cells and modifies this protein to make it a more of what we call a pro-apoptotic uh, protein, which the idea is it promotes cell death. Um, so it's a it's a totally different approach from other types of of uh, um, of, of drugs because this is a, a form of DNA that that we're trying to get into cells. And uh, it's interesting because there uh, was just a report in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at a form of uh, of uh, amyloidosis, targeting it with a type of uh, RNA, and showing that this that you could target this and effectively control uh, the development of or the progression of amyloidosis. So I think this approach may have some real promise for uh, this type of treatment for patients. But it's a very early study, and and we don't have any any kind of results to report at this time. But this is still in the immunotherapy family, would you say? Um, no? I wouldn't call this immunotherapy. I think the, more of the immunotherapy approach is the antibodies, and then uh, some of the studies that are starting to be done 
with modified T cells. And then, of course, the oldest form of immunotherapy that that we use is, is donor transplants or allogeneic stem cell transplants. So to that end, we have a study where we're uh, using a kind of unique um, regimen to treat uh, the uh, myeloma in patients who have high-risk myeloma. So it's it's well known that there are certain features of uh, myeloma at diagnosis that are called high-risk. What that means is patients who have these high-risk features have a more aggressive form of their disease. They can respond to treatment, but they generally have shorter remissions and uh, the disease comes back much more quickly uh, with the same therapy that might control the disease for a longer period of time in patients who do not have these risk factors. Some of these risk factors are an elevated beta-2 microglobulin, which is a protein that's a marker of the disease in, in the blood, and then certain genetic abnormalities that are seen uh, by chromosome analysis of myeloma cells, either with conventional chromosome analysis, uh, for example, deletion of chromosome 13, or with FISH analysis, uh, deletion of chromosome 17, or a translocation, which means a piece of, of, the, of the DNA from one chromosome has been switched and swapped out onto another chromosome. In this case, uh, the tr uh, translocation 414. So that means a piece of chromosome 4 is, has come off and been attached to chromosome 14. That translocation is also associated with high-risk features. What we're doing for this is we're looking at a unique way to deliver more aggressive therapy as part of the treatment for patients who are having donor transplants. In this case, it's uh, a substance known as yttrium-90 uh, attached to an antibody, CD45. So yttrium-90 is a radioisotope. So it's a radioactive substance, and it's very high energy, but it's a what we call a pure beta radioactive substance. What that means is it doesn't have any gamma rays or X-rays. So the energy from the radioactivity uh, has has a path length of only about roughly uh, a, a third to a half an inch in in uh, distance. So you can give this isotope to a person and it it acts across several cell path, several cell uh, diameters but does not become dangerous to anyone standing next to the patient or anything like that but what we do is we attach this isotope to an antibody called CD45 now CD45 is an antibody that attack or not attacks it it binds to blood cells in general. So what this does is it guides the isotope to the cells in the bone marrow and the cells in the lymph nodes and spleen. These are the sites of blood cancers in general, but also the sites of, of the disease multiple myeloma. 
So the idea is you get a dose of this isotope. It's given intravenously. It travels to the bone marrow. It travels to the lymph nodes and spleen and irradiates those areas with this yttrium-90. Yttrium-90 has a half-life of about two and a half days. And so after about 10 days, the isotope has disappeared from your body. It, it's decayed away. After this treatment, patients are then given some chemotherapy primarily designed to uh, assure engraftment of the allogeneic stem cells. So they receive fludarabine and then some immunosuppressive drugs. And then uh, they receive uh, bone marrow, or excuse me, not bone marrow, but peripheral blood stem cells from a suitable allogeneic donor. This donor is most commonly a brother or sister, but may also be an unrelated donor if we can find a suitable donor in the registry. So the idea here is to facilitate the graft, but also to eradicate as much of the myeloma as possible prior to the introduction of the graft. What that does is it makes it easier for the graft to, if you will, clean up any residual myeloma that's left behind. This is one of the advantages of a donor transplant. These, these, uh, this new immune system with the donor cells can more effectively attack and destroy the myeloma cells and get rid of them from the body. Now, allogeneic transplants have, have these major advantages, but they also have disadvantages. This yeah, is a I'm more difficult... I'm wondering if you difficult, didn't talk about that. Sure. It's a more difficult approach to go through than, a, than using your autologous stem cells, and that's because uh, these, uh, these allogeneic cells replace the bone marrow and the immune system in the patient. And it takes up to a year before a patient's immune system recovers from this. And during that time, patients are more susceptible to infections and uh, can, can develop quite serious infections during this time. In addition, the cells have the capacity to damage normal organs in the body. Uh, it's basically a form of rejection where the, the immune system is rejecting the body of the patient, and primarily this affects the liver or the skin or the GI tract. We call that graft-versus-host disease, and this has to be controlled or prevented by giving these Im immunosuppressive drugs. Patients need to take these drugs for a minimum of six months, but sometimes they have to take the drugs uh, for as long as a year or two if they have any graft-versus-host disease. Now, one of the good things is, though, that eventually the graft develops tolerance to the patient, and patients are able to come off these drugs eventually. But uh, so it's not like uh, if you if you just to give an example, if you have a patient who requires a kidney transplant because their kidneys are failing, those patients have to take these immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of their life. Their body never develops tolerance to the kidney graft, and so they're always at risk of rejecting it. That doesn't happen with a with a uh, a bone marrow or a stem cell transplant, 
most patients eventually uh, the graft becomes tolerant to them. Now, the bottom line on this is that allogeneic transplants, while they have a greater chance of long-term disease control and a greater chance actually of curing the disease, they're much more difficult to do, and there's a much greater risk of complications. Uh, there is a risk of dying from this type of transplant in the range of 15 to 20%. And so that's the reason it's not more widely used, because of this risk. If you con contrast that to an autologous transplant, where uh, you're using your own stem cells, the risk of, of dying from that type of treatment is very low in the range of only 1% to 2%. So we're trying to improve on the ability to do the aloe transplants because we think it has a greater chance of cure. But in the interim, in the absence of that, many of us are, are trying to work on trying to make uh, myeloma, if you will, a chronic disease. I, I hesitate to use uh, the, the analogy to something like diabetes because it's clearly not, uh, that's not a cancer. But the management of myeloma has improved tremendously in the last 10 years. And I think that for some patients who don't have high risk features, they actually can have their disease managed as a chronic form for sometimes uh, 10 years or more. And that's one of the things we're trying to do in the absence of the ability to cure the disease. But I think we're not ignoring uh, approaches to try to cure the disease. It's just that we're trying to do all these thing, different things simultaneously. And our ultimate goal is to try to improve the overall treatment and outcomes for patients with myeloma. So one of the things that we do is look at maintenance therapy. Maintenance therapy is essentially low-dose drug treatment used after some initial treatment. That can be uh, an initial course of therapy to get the disease control, or it could be an initial course of therapy followed by an autologous stem cell transplant. And an autologous stem cell transplant, we know, has a much better chance of producing remissions. The remissions tend to be more durable. And in some studies, patients who have transplants live longer than patients who don't. But autologous transplant is not a cure for the majority of patients. The disease will come back. And so now we're looking at drugs for maintenance as a way to improve uh, how patients do, keep the disease under control for longer periods of time, and hopefully result in patients living longer. There has been progress in this. Uh, lenalidomide has been shown in several trials to improve uh, the length of disease-free interval. It can nearly double the length of remission uh, when it's used after an autologous transplant. And at least in one of two trials, patients who had maintenance lived longer than patients who did not. But it's not a cure. Patients, the disease does come back. So we're looking for other strategies. We're studying other types of uh, drugs for this. Um, 
Bortezomib has been studied, and it looks promising as another way to do maintenance. And then, of course, uh, some of these new oral proteasome inhibitors, like the one I mentioned, MLN9708, are being studied as a form of maintenance. And so I think there's a lot of exciting um, strategies that we're all working on to try to improve things for patients. Um, one of them, of course, is is what's the best initial therapy? And I talked about that earlier, about two drugs versus three or perhaps even four drugs. I think that ultimately antibody combinations are going to be important with two or three different drugs, but we've got to prove that, and that's what these studies are aimed at right now. So let's see. I think I've covered about all I wanted to say. I don't know if there's any other areas you wanted me to touch on. Well, with a, a wide variety of trials that you're running and a lot of different approaches that you're taking, how and I know you that you specify that some are for newly diagnosed patients, some are for high-risk myeloma patients, some are for refractory myeloma patients. But a patient looking at all the trials that are running at your facility, how do you choose one that is personally the most relevant? What do you suggest to your patients? Sure, that's a good point. Um, well, I'll tell you. Um, so of of the trials that we have open now, say for a newly diagnosed patient, um, two of them are designed for patients who are not really going to consider autologous stem cell transplant. So they're really designed for patients that are, say, older than age 70, or patients who might be younger and have uh, comorbidities such as bad lungs or a bad heart that might make it uh, more dangerous for them to uh, um, uh, undergo an autologous transplant. So those trials would be the trials that I would recommend to to patients who might not be transplant candidates. And then the other trials, uh, the other two trials, one of them I mentioned is the bortezomib-lenalidomid-dex trial. That's asking the question of an early transplant versus delaying it to later in the course of the disease. The other trial is the carfilzomib cyclophosphamid dexamethasone trial. That's just an induction trial, and after that, patients can have a transplant or not. So depending on the patient's wishes, um, I may steer them to one or not. If a patient says they don't want to have a transplant, they're not interested in a transplant, I might... Uh, steer them to the trial that involves just the induction therapy because transplant in that is optional. If, on the other hand, a patient wants a transplant, but, but again, they're not sure about it, they might be a suitable candidate for this trial in which there's a randomization between the two. So it's, it's sometimes not possible to say one trial is better than another because they're all asking different questions, but I, I think you can narrow it down to a choice of one or two after discussion with the patient and really trying to find out what they want, what what they're interested in for their goals. And I mm -hmm. think that's an important part when, you, when you're talking about things with the patient 
you do want to personalize the treatment. You do want a, a treatment that the patient uh, is in tune with. Um, I don't think we're quite at the point of what we of the of what we call personalized medicine yet. Personalized medicine implies a treatment that is based on specific genetic characteristics of the tumor that uh, whereby you can use drugs that might exploit a specific pathway that uh, is most active in that patient's type of myeloma. There, if you have a drug that can attack that particular pathway, that might be a better way to go for the patient. I don't think we're quite there yet, but it is certainly an area that we're moving toward uh, more and more. Okay. Dr. Bensinger, it's terrific. Let me open it up just for caller questions. And um, I will say your phone. Uh, Anyone who is interested in asking a question can press 1 on their keypad. And we have one question, so let me bring them on. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Hi, Dr. Bensinger. Thank you so much for taking your time today. Um, And the question I have is around personalized medicine. Um, What kind of tests can we do to identify the different types of myeloma, and and how many types of myeloma are there? Well, there is there are several tests that are out there that involve uh, um, gen, uh, gene active genetic uh, pathways that are seen in myeloma cells, and there there are a variety of specific uh, tests tests that look at certain types of signaling and growth and and reproductive pathways in the cell. They look at things like uh, signaling for apoptosis, which is the cell death pathway. And they they all deal with aspects of cell regulation and growth. Broadly speaking, the studies that have been done classify these into about four to six different broad groups types of myeloma. But it's it's really a simplification, I think, to help us understand uh, uh, broadly what things are active. So if you have a particular type of pathway that's been activated, this is where ultimately it may be possible to pick a drug that can block that pathway in your cells. I do want to tell you that you have to be a little bit careful about that because one of the hallmarks of myeloma is what we call genetic instability. What that means is the cells don't have a uniform, common genetic signature among themselves. You have multiple groups of cells, or what we refer to as subclones of cells, each subclone has a little bit different genetic signature. And what happens sometimes is if you use a drug that favors one particular group of cells, you effectively control that group, but what happens is the other group that has a different genetic signature may be allowed to survive and grow and proliferate, and that's the group of cells that grows back. So it's a it's it it's a little bit complex to talk about truly personalized treatment of a particular type of cancer. Does that uh, well, help you? It, it, it's a little disappointing to the, the answer. If, if, the, 
I was hoping there would be a simpler answer, that there's seven subsites well, that we can personalize the treatment to a certain subsite. Yeah. Myeloma, myeloma, unfortunately, is not like a disease such as CML. So CML, chronic myeloid leukemia, there's a single genetic abnormality that is seen, and that is the dominant feature of the disease in most patients. Myeloma is not like that, unfortunately, and that's why it's been more difficult to uh, approach and treat this disease in a personalized way. We, um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I listened to one of the shows, I think Dr. Lundgren, uh, and um, he's from Sweden, and he talked about um, the the more sensitive tests that are out there right now and, and, and being able to, to to get greater specificity in, in profiling the disease. Do you think that's helpful to the doctors in treating this? I think it's helpful for understanding some of the pathways that are involved in the uh, growth and progression of the disease. But again, I I don't think we're at a point now where uh, we have really targeted therapeutics that are going to be able to exploit those pathways. I don't think we're there yet. All right. Well, th thank you for a great interview today, by the way. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, kind of a follow-up question that I might have about that is, is that as we see gene expressions with different types of cancers, like a lung cancer or a different kind of cancer that has a particular gene expression, can we start looking at what we were talking about before the call, cross, um, I guess, cross-coordination between diseases? And can we treat with potentially already existing drugs for that type of genetic expression? Do you, do you think we're still quite far away from that as well? Well, I mean, I think we're starting to do that. An example is abrutinib. So abrutinib is this drug that is active in two type, very active in two types of malignancies, chronic lymphocytic leukemia and mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, we're studying it now in myeloma because this same pathway may be active in a, in a group of patients with myeloma. And so we're hoping that this drug will have cross-activity in myeloma as, as it has in these other types of blood cancers. But it, we don't know yet. I mean, it remains to be seen about this activity because we just started this trial uh, recently and we, we don't have enough results. Okay. So well, I think I we're that, trying to do that. Yeah, yeah I think so. I, I hear a lot of people starting to talk about that, even though it seems like it's at the beginning of that type of discussion. Okay, we have yeah. one more caller that will okay. open for a question. Okay, go ahead. Hi, doctor. Um, I was wondering what is it about autologous transplants that makes them less effective in curing the disease and rather just brings the patients into remission for a temporary period of time? So one of the problems with myeloma is drug resistance. So when you when you treat a patient with chemotherapy and even with uh, high-dose therapy like melphalan, there is a small uh, residual group of cells that are resistant and survive the assault, if you will, with the chemotherapy and with the high-dose therapy. Those cells... Uh, 
basically survive and eventually grow and lead to a relapse of the myeloma. So it's this it's it's this drug resistance that is the hallmark uh, that makes it more difficult to cure this disease. I will tell you that we do have a small number of patients, perhaps in the range of 10 to, in some cases, as high as 15%, that are long-term survivors after autologous transplant. And by long-term survivor, I mean more than 10 years. And some of these patients may actually be cured, but the problem is the majority of patients, uh, they have these resistant cells that survive this treatment and ultimately regrow. Now, a donor transplant uh, has the advantage in that they, this is, as you will, a form of immunotherapy. These new donor cells have a limited capacity to seek out and destroy these residual cells that may have survived the uh, therapies that are given. And so autologous cells, by their very nature, because they're your own stem cells, don't have uh, this immune reactivity against the myeloma. Okay. That's so great. Thank you for the question and for the answer. I have a follow-up question about your response. When you say 10 to 15 percent, of patients are potentially cured that have gone through an autologous transplant or um, uh, potentially other therapies. Have, has anyone taken a look to see what kind of um, either fish or cytogenetics testing that they had or to see if there are similarities with their backgrounds? Are, are we curing a, a subtype? Yeah, it's, they're generally the they're generally the good risk patients that don't have these high risk fish features such as uh, deletion 17 or 414 mm -hmm. or deletion 13 by conventional cytogenetics. So they they are uh, from among a group of patients with uh, uh, these good risk features. And uh, just to clarify, I I, I don't want to tell you that 10 to 15 percent are cured. What I'm saying is 10 to 15 percent are surviving more than 10 years in remission after autotransplant, and we think that some of them may actually be cured, but I, 10 to 15 percent may be an overestimate of, of the actual curability there. Yeah, no, thank you for the clarification. Well, sure. Dr. Bensinger, we are so grateful that you joined us today. It's a, been a very informative interview. You've covered a lot of things for us to think about. Um, we will be posting this this interview as a full transcript so people can go back and refer to it because I know they will want to. Um, I'm just so thankful for your participation today. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed doing it, and uh, uh, it's really been fun for me, too. Now, if you'd like to contact Dr. Bensinger and ask him about his trials individually, he is located in our doctor directory on the www.mpatient.org website. And if you send him a message via that method, he will receive that and you can contact him about individual trials. Well, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you so much, Dr. Reitzinger. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Innovation in Myeloma on the Mpatient Myeloma Radio Show. Join us next Friday for another episode to learn more about how your participation can help push faster towards a cure.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.